Hello, and welcome to the podcast, The Scriptures Are Real. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have made them become more real to us, and that allows us to draw more power out of them, and we need that power in our lives. I'm your host, Kerry Mulestein, and in this episode, we're going to talk about the origins of the book of Jonah and how the story came together, and then we're going to emphasize the the artistry that comes from that story and the literary elements of the story, and that will allow us to, to say, what do these uh, literary elements teach us about prophets? And we'll also explore connections with Canaanite mythology and how the story is used elsewhere, such as how Jesus uses it. In order to help us with that, I'm so excited to have our guest, Stephen Smoot. He's been with us before when we talked about the Exodus. Uh, and so we introduced Stephen a little bit there. I've, I've done a lot of work with Stephen. We've co-authored a number of things and we work on projects together. He's just finishing up a PhD in Egyptology at uh, Catholic University. He did a master's in Egyptology at the University of Toronto. Uh, so welcome, Stephen, and, and tell us a little bit more about yourself. Well, thank you for having me back, having me back on the show, Carrie. I appreciate that. Uh, I'm glad that I didn't say anything last time that was so egregious or embarrassing that you, uh, you know, kicked me off the show. So happy to uh, no, this happy is to your be chance back to here. make up for it. There we go. There we go. Yeah, yes, this is my I'm rejection. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah that was so, fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I had a good time then, and I'm looking forward to our discussion of Jonah. So, um, yeah, I guess just a little bit about me. Uh, you've kind of hit the highlights. I'm currently a PhD student. Um, I, I just have to correct you just slightly. My, my doctorate is in uh, specifically Semitic and Egyptian languages and literature at yeah. the Catholic University. That's okay. It's a long, fancy title, right? Uh, 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 for basically, you're right. I, I do Egyptology. I also do biblical studies. Um, but it's a li- uh, my program specifically has a little bit both in the mix, right, yeah. uh, of the two. So uh, ju- just a slight correction there. But yes, I'm at Catholic University uh, pursuing uh, my uh, doctoral work there. And uh, I'm, I'm right now working uh, well in the same department as you are as adjunct faculty at religious education uh, at BYU, which I'm having a tremendous time doing. I'm having a lot of fun there. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think what else. Yeah, I've, I've got several nice, fun projects in the works. Uh, you and I have something in the works to give yeah. a little spoiler free, uh, you know, heads up to our to your listeners to look forward to something you and I and others will have coming out here in the near future. Um, and so I'm just sort yeah, of, I think living... we can say it's on the book of Abraham, but, uh, yeah, sure, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Your, your listeners can probably guess, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. So, so Carrie and I, um, and John Gee and John Thompson, two other Latter-day Saint Egyptologists, we have a book coming out here, um, in the near-ish future, uh, probably looking sometime, uh, uh in early or mid 2023, probably we're looking at, so your listeners can look out for that. Um, but yeah, so other than that, just kind of living the grad life, right? You know, uh, living the best life I can as a grad student right now. Um, and having fun with you on your podcast. Yeah, yep. And and we did also just have an article come out in BYU Studies on uh, the Jewish presence in Egypt and what that can tell us about the transmission of the Book of Abraham or what it can hint at or someone. We don't really know the transmission, but but background of transmission. And so uh, I love working with Stephen because I don't have to do much of the work. He does all of it. So it's really <laughs> nice. So, uh, Well, it's fun case, working with you, Kerry, because I can have someone who ha- has much more academic prestige and authority than I do. Uh, so it's nice to be able to, co- to co-write things with you. Uh, so because, let me translate. Uh, <laughs> I, I fake it really well and have been doing so for a while. So yeah, that's that's the translation of that. So, well, Stephen, why don't you tell us uh, your take? Uh, a lot of people have questions about Jonah as a, a literary book or as a, a book of scripture and its historicity. So why don't you tell us your take on that? I'd be happy to. So uh, Jonah is a really interesting book for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first reason why it's interesting is where it's placed in the 
I'm going to go with the, the Hebrew ordering of, of the Hebrew Bible, of the, the biblical books. So the, the Protestant and Catholic ordering of the biblical books is different than the Jewish or the Hebrew ordering. Yeah. Um, and Ours the, is fairly the, arbitrary, just right, by yeah. length, right? Which <laughs> yeah, I don't know, yeah, right, that's a weird like that. criteria. But anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, in, the, in the Jewish ordering uh, of, of the biblical books, Jonah appears in the book of the 12 prophets. So Jonah is one of the 12, right? Uh, not the 12 apostles, the 12 prophets. Uh, that's a, a specific section of the Old Testament, right? But what's funny about that, so if you compare the other books of the 12 prophets, so, uh, you know, Micah, Obadiah, Malachi, Zephaniah, you know, you go down them, right? Yeah, Amos, Habakkuk, right? Whoever else, Habakkuk, yeah. all those great, you know, uh, the minor prophets, not because they're unimportant, just because they're small books, right? Yeah. Um, all of them typically start with, you know, the word of the Lord unto the prophet so-and-so in the year such-and-such such, saying, and then it's a series of oracles, right? So the prophet yeah. will deliver these oracles or pronouncements uh, on whatever the subject jonah however is a narrative it's predominantly a narrative um so there's actually very little prophesying happening in the book of jonah and jonah is considered a prophet and jonah is ordered with the prophets but jonah doesn't do a whole lot of prophesying which is kind of interesting right so so the first thing biblical scholars notice is uh it sort of stands out uh, in, in in that respect yeah he doesn't now, what's really also say you don't have jonah saying anything it, it talks about that he does say people things to people but we don't have anything about what he said to them we we only have his conversations with god and and right, shipmates yeah. right so yeah right yeah so so that's one thing that people have noticed that's interesting about jonah um the second thing that's interesting about jonah is we actually don't know strictly speaking who the author is right mm -hmm. so because it's told in this third third person narrative voice unlike the other prophetic books where it's a the prophet is receiving the word of the lord and then gives these first person pronouncements right uh you know we can i, I think with a fair degree of of uh, reliability uh, or I should I should say surety, perhaps uh, we can assume or we can attribute the sayings of these prophets to the people they're attributed to. Right. So right. Uh, obviously these books have complex uh, transmissions and textual histories. But for the most part, I think most scholars are comfortable saying uh, the, the, the biblical prophets uh, to an appreciable degree. They are the the authors of the contents of their books. Right. Uh, the, yeah. the oracles. Jonah, yeah, it's much Isaiah, more Isaiah, there's questions right? about like how many Certainly. Isaiah's and whatever. But still, basically, you're, you're, you're correct. So, yeah. You're safe to attribute them to the prophet, right? Even yeah. if we acknowledge uh, perhaps a complex textual or compositional history of the books. Right. With Jonah, however, um, again, we, we can't really say, speak of who the author is because we don't get an author. We just suddenly open up in the third person narrative of this guy named Jonah. So that also stands up to people. People wonder who may have written this book, when may have written. That's the other question, right? So when was the book of Jonah composed? Yeah. Uh, most, most biblical scholars will place it uh, either uh, in the post-exilic period so we're talking probably Which is when they like to place, place almost everything, but yeah. 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 That, that's kind of the safe sort of default when you want to want to put these things right. Uh, yeah. uh, is, is we'll, we'll say so. So typically uh, the, the consensus right now is to say probably between uh, the, the fourth or the third century by the latest. Um, I, I really myself don't have much of an opinion because I haven't looked closely at yeah. the subject. Uh, and I don't know if we can say all that much. That's the other problem is, Jonah doesn't give us a lot of clues textually or linguistically to date it, right? Um, the Hebrew, it's it's pretty just sort of straightforward, classical biblical Hebrew, as far as I can tell, and as others have talked about, right? So you don't have a lot of the, the dead giveaways for this being late biblical Hebrew. So some have said, maybe we should push it back earlier for that reason. Others have said, well, you can, you can always imitate earlier language, right? So maybe the author of Jonah is imitating the older language when he's writing it later. So you get arguments back and forth. Uh, and this is to say, 
because we don't have any good uh, historical grounding for the book, uh, it's difficult to sort of place it, uh, it's, it's compositional history. So, so a, bi a big question mark there for me, um, but if we just wanna go with the default, we'd say probably in the post-exilic period, uh, 4th or 3rd century BC, um, which uh, I don't know, maybe we can just assume that for now uh, until we have further information about yeah. it. But that, that's a little bit, you know, what, what we can say um, uh, for now. Now, what's interesting about the figure of Jonah is uh, the Bible actually records an actual prophet named Jonah. So 2 Kings 14, verse 25, talks about there was a prophet named Jonah, the son of Amittai. Uh, that's uh, exactly who shows up in Jonah 1.1, right? Jonah, the son mm -hmm. of Amittai, uh, who is operating in the northern kingdom of Israel under, I think it's during the reign of Jeroboam II. So this is putting us in the like mid seventh century BC, I think, or eighth century BC, I think we would say with Jeroboam the second, I don't know offhand. Yeah, around, around 750, somewhere around there. Something like that, yeah, yeah, yeah. mid mid eighth century. So we're talking most and that's, likely that's... Northern, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say that we're talking Northern Kingdom in that case, if that's what we're talking about here. Um, and we're talking about the a period when the Neo-Assyrian Empire is the regional uh, hegemonic power, right? Uh, which makes sense because that's who shows up in the Book of Jonah or the Assyrians. Yeah. Yeah. So he's roughly contemporary with Amos, who also prophesied during the reigns of Uzziah and Jeroboam II, right? So, uh, I mean, that's a rough. They both yeah. reigned for a long time. So that, that gives you a big yeah. chunk of time to put, put them both under, but roughly. Roughly, yeah, roughly around that time. Now, uh, what, what this says to me, uh, talking about, so people wonder about the, the historicity of this figure Jonah and these wacky misadventures that he gets on, right? Getting swallowed by a big fish and going to Nineveh and all that sort of stuff. Um, what that, to me, uh, and I'd be here, interested to hear your thoughts on this, Carrie, as well. Um, so I think that there was a historical prophet, Jonah, right? Second Kings uh, records as much. Uh, I don't see any reason why we should doubt that. Uh, Court prophets working for the king is a tried and true, tested, you know, method of prophecy in the in ancient Israel. Both the northern and southern kingdoms are doing it. We have no reason to think that the author of Second Kings is just making up that there's a guy named Jonah. So sure, let's say there's a prophet named Jonah uh, in the middle of the eighth century, working under Jeroboam the second, right, or prophesying during his his period. Now, um, I, I acknowledge that reality that there's a historical figure named Jonah. The difficulty is how much historicity do we ascribe to the stories attributed to Jonah in this book of Jonah that we have, which probably has been composed much later than the historical figure of Jonah is living. And this is where you'll get uh, a wide variety of opinion. Again, most biblical scholars are going to assume very little historicity in the book of Jonah itself, right? They're going to maybe see these as maybe fables or legends about this prophet named Jonah. And uh, there, there's reason for that, right? Uh, it's not just because biblical scholars are just dismissing out of hand, you know, the Bible. Like, they, they give grounded reasons for thinking this way uh, that makes some sense to me. Uh, and we'll talk about this, as, as you mentioned in the highlight. So, for example, this book is clearly the book of Jonah. If you read it carefully and uh, you pickle and hyperbolic and exaggerated to an appreciable degree, right? Uh, there's, there's stuff happening in the story uh, that seems very outlandish and kind of wacky or absurd. Um, and so for, for, for these and other reasons, scholars think, well, we're probably not going with sort of factual history stories that we think of it today. We're talking more in terms of like legends or maybe fables or something like that. So my own position uh, that I approach is to say, I think there was a historical Jonah. Um, I think he maybe even was prophesying to the Assyrians, right? He's living during this time period. So uh, why wouldn't he have been prophesying about or to the Assyrians? 
Um, I think, however, that our book of Jonah and our author of the book of Jonah is uh, deliberately sort of making a farce out of the life and ministry of the prophet Jonah to teach us some very important points and some very important principles and truths. So as we go through the book of Jonah for our discussion today, that's sort of to frame it. That's how I uh, approach the text and, and understand the text. I think the principles we learn from it are, are timeless and important. Um, but I think we have to just take with a, with a little bit of a grain of salt uh, the fact that uh, probably not everything we read in this book is straightforward historical as we would imagine it today, perhaps. All right. Well, let's let's hear what uh, some of the things that you draw out of the text as uh, you take that approach. So, yeah, all right. I guess we can just jump right into it, right? So, jump into Jonah one one. The word, uh, by the way, uh, I'll be switching sort of back and forth between the Jewish Publication Society Tanakh. So that's a translation that the Jewish Publication Society did uh, in 1985 that I find really useful and helpful. Yeah, I like that um, translation. I'll, I'll I'll skip between that and the King James version, sort of going back and forth. Uh, so um, if, if if you're following along, listening to your King J- or reading your King James version, and you notice some differences in wording, uh, that's just why. It's because I'm just reading more modern translation. But in any case, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. All right. So the good old this is the classic prophetic formula. Go at once to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim judgment upon it, for their wickedness has come before me. So Nineveh, right, the capital of the Neo Assyrian Empire. Um, a very important city in antiquity, and uh, it's in the in the imaginations of the ancient Israelites, it's kind of like a you know next to Babylon, it's like the archetypical evil city, right? Uh, so you know, so so in other words, God is telling Jonah to go preach to the Death Star. In other words, right? If we can imagine it in modern uh, popular imagination, okay. Now here's what's funny. So we think, okay, sure, go preach to the Assyrians at Nineveh, right? The judgment's upon it. Here's what's funny. Right out of the gates. You begin to see where the author of Jonah is turning the life and ministry of the prophet Jonah into sort of a a satire or a farce. Because in verse 3, he says, Jonah, however, started out to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence or the Lord's service. He went down to Joppa, 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 uh, you know, uh, in modern Israel, uh, down there on the coast, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went aboard to sail with the others to Tarshish, away from the service of the Lord. So two things right off the bat. Number one, it's funny that a prophet is trying to run away from God, right? Like of all the people you think that you can't do that or they would know you can't run away from God. You think a prophet would know that. But Jonah thinks, I don't want to go preach to the Death Star, (laughs) to the scary Assyrian. So I'm going to run away from God. So off the bat, come on, that's pretty funny, right? The fact that a prophet thinks he can do this. Second of all, you need to know something where Tarshish is or where we think it is. We don't know for sure. There's still big debate. But it's probably somewhere along either the coast of North Africa or the Iberian Peninsula, so modern Spain, right? Yeah. In other words, and again, if you know where Nineveh is, it's northern Mesopotamia. In other words, Jonah is literally running in the exact opposite direction God told him to go to. Yeah. So yeah, again, even if you ignore like where Nineveh is, I believe it's certainly that is the exact opposite direction. But if you think of where Jaffa is, especially if you're going to, if it's in the Iberian Peninsula, it's a little less so, but still pretty close if it's uh, on North African coast. He's going as far away as the ship will take him, right? Across the Mediterranean Sea, as far as he can go. They're, they're not heading out into the Atlantic at this point. Well, maybe Vikings are, but uh, but no one around here are, and I don't know if we have Vikings this time period. So who knows what they're doing? Phoenicians maybe a little bit, but for the most part, Mediterranean Sea is where these guys are sailing, and he's he's getting as far across the Mediterranean as he can. 
he he's running away to the end of the world, basically, uh, yeah. as we can think about yeah. it, the known world of, of you know of ancient Israel. Um, yeah. Again, it's pretty funny, right, to think about a prophet doing this. We we don't think of prophets when they get a prophetic oracle from God. They run in the opposite direction, literally to the end of the world, as it were. So so our ancient Israelite audience for this book, they would have been hearing this, and I imagine some of them are sort of keeling over in laughter as they hear about this because it's sort of satirical and farcical, right? Okay, so so that's kind of fun. So we know the story, right? We'll kind of gloss over it here. Uh, Jonah's on the boat. The uh, a storm comes up, right? The Lord casts a mighty storm upon the sea, a great tempest, and the ship is going to break. So all the sailors. So we're dealing with probably you know Phoenician sailors, Phoenician or Philistine sailors, right? People living on the coast. Um, and it says that they, uh, in their fright, this is verse five. In the fright, the sailors cried out, each to his own god. Uh, and they fling the, sh the ship's cargo overboard to make it lighter. So, so the pagan sailors are freaking out and crying to their gods. And what's Jonah doing in the meantime? He's down in the vessel having a nap. So Jonah's sleeping through this monstrous, dangerous, giant storm that's freaking everybody out. And Jonah's sleeping. Again, pretty funny, right? Uh, so the captain goes to Jonah and says, uh, call upon your God. Perhaps God will be kind and we will not perish, right? So... Uh, later on, Jonah does do this, and the sailors also do this. So another joke here is that the pagan sailors are now praying to the God of Israel, right? So in, in some ways, they're more pious than even the prophet Jonah is, because yeah. they even so Jonah's having a nice nap during this giant storm, and the pagan sailors are like, hey, man, you've got to call upon your God, the God of Israel, to save all of us. Uh, so another sort of, again, funny satirical element here, the pagan sailors... Uh, are more pious than God's own prophet in terms of calling upon God to save them from this calamity, right? Um, so, so that's pretty great. They even say uh, in verse 16, so after they throw Jonah overboard, well, first of all, they, they cast lots to decide what to do about this. And uh, you may have discussed this on your show before, I'm sure, but casting lots, cleromancy, it's called, right? This is, uh, it's not just like for fun or whatever, like we do today. Like uh, it was, it was a form of divination in the yeah. ancient world right so this and is we the way see you it can... in the book of mormon we see it in the yep. new testament right they they did it's kind of like drawing who's going to get the short straw kind of a thing um except for that they believe this is a viable way to have mm -hmm. the lord manifest his will and uh, i kind of think that if you really faithfully believe that that there will when god really needs his will manifest that he'll he'll do it that way but i i don't think nephi was misguided in this Right. And it's not random, too. Right. Like we, we usually think of drawing lots in the sense of we want a an even playing field way to determine an outcome of something. So we'll make it randomized so that we can eliminate bias from the decision. Uh, in the ancient world, casting lots is a way to divine the will of a god or a deity. Right. Um, right. And so, yes, Nephi does it. In the New Testament, they do it to pick the apostle Judas's uh, successor. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, so Peter leaves it up to that for uh, finding yeah. out. Some people will will argue that that's actually no, they they. They voted by putting like different color stones or something like that. A little bit like what happens when choosing a pope today. Some people argue that's what it means, but I think it's more in keeping with the ancient practices that we know of. If mm -hmm. it's this other way, so right. Uh, but what we have here is the sailors doing it right. So verse seven, yeah. they cast lots, and the lot falls on Jonah. The joke here being Jonah can't escape his fate. He thought he could run away from God, but uh, you know the joke's on Jonah because uh, even the pagan sailors, when they cast lots, God is able to work through that to determine Jonah's singled out here. So, of course, they throw Jonah overboard. And then uh, the, the very last verse of, of chapter one, 
The men feared the Lord greatly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. I mean, come on, that's pretty good, right? So again, the, the, the pagan sailors, and think of all the negative sort of stereotypes that come with sailors, who they are, right? <laughs> Typically not, not, not genteel society, right? Uh, but even these uh, rough and salty pagan sailors, they're pious enough to worship God and offer sacrifice and make vows to him. So we're off to a, a pretty good start, I see, in terms of our author of Jonah is using the example of this historical prophet to teach us something about like how not to be a prophet. And this is going to come up later uh, in chapters three and four, where it, it really gets highlighted. But, you know, again, ho hopefully our listeners are hearing or sort of seeing what, what I mean uh, when I say the way the story about Jonah is being told, there's a deliberate element of hyperbole and farce and satire going on here for co both comedic effect. It's pretty funny, right? But also to draw out the more important point, which is Jonah gives us an example of what not to do when God calls you into his service, Right. Uh, you can't run away from God. You can't run and hide at the end of the world, which is what Jonah thought he could do. Um, you have to, you know, it, it's inevitably going to catch up to you, in other words, right? Uh, the, the lot's going to fall on you. Uh, God is going to follow you wherever you try to go when you're called into a service. So don't try to outrun it uh, is sort of the message um, of Jonah 1 sitting up here. So I don't know anything else about chapter one we should mention or that kind of, I think, covers you know, most of our bases there, right? Yeah, yeah. And I would say um, the fact that, some people would say the fact that this is set up uh, with such literary artistry, as you've mentioned, um, would take away from the historicity. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think you can have some things that are really happening, but the way they're presented, the right. elements that they choose to highlight, uh, and they may not even know exactly what happened on the ship or whatever, but they're, 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 uh, uh, you know, I don't know. They're figuring out how to present this in a way that conveys the message the way they want to convey it. Yeah, well, well said. There was a, a famous biblical scholar um, who once said, just because a story is told beautifully doesn't mean it's not true, yeah. uh, to, to highlight this very point, right? Uh, so yes, we always have to keep this sort of in mind as we, uh, as we engage uh, in any case, uh, maybe then we could proceed to chapter two real quick. Yeah. Um, so this is famously, and, and every kid in Sunday school and every kid in primary knows the story, Jonah getting swallowed by, and I believe the King James has a great whale. Uh, right, it's just, a great fish, if I remember. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, it's me, at the me, end of chapter one, and what does it say? Uh, a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Okay, so so it does use fish. great fish. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes you'll see, uh, well, people talk about, oh, Jonah was swallowed by the whale. And sometimes you'll see translations of that. Um, yeah. Again, the, the, the Hebrew just says a, a dog gadol, a, a big fish. Yeah. Uh, and so for a long time, people have had fun speculating what kind of a fish is this. Um, actually, whale, uh, this is what it gets glossed as in both the Septuagint and the Vulgate. Is, is I think this is where we get the, the imagery from, uh, is from uh, the Greek and Latin translations. The Bible render it as a whale. Um, because, well, what other great fish is it going to be, right? So, but in any case, um, just, just a fun little example of where our sort of our cultural uh, osmosis kind of seeps into our thinking of the story. And so people just say, oh, yeah, Jonah was swallowed by the whale. Well, technically just a big fish, right? Maybe it's a whale, maybe it's something else. Um, but in any case, he's swallowed by uh, the big fish, and he's in the fish's belly for three days and three nights. Now, this is probably a good opportunity to mention how Jesus in the New Testament uh, uses this. 
So uh, in Matthew 12 uh, and in Matthew 16, it's also Luke 11. So throughout uh, and uh, also, uh, yeah, so, so Luke 11, Matthew 16, Matthew 12, Jesus talks about the sign of the prophet Jonas. Now, don't let that word confuse you. That's just the Greek rendering of the name Jonah, right? And Jesus clearly is using this as a as a type or a symbol for his own descent into the tomb, and, uh, you know, his his death and his descent into the spirit world, um, which sort of thematically works really well, which we'll discuss here um, in just a second. But the way Jesus uses the story of Jonah um, in the New Testament, uh, first of all, he uses Jonah's preaching against Nineveh as sort of a type and a shadow of his own preaching against people in his day. Um, but more famously, he uses the sign of Jonas. So this is Matthew 12, uh, verse 44. As Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly. There it is, the whale, the, the kathos in Greek, right? Uh, yeah. uh, so the, the New Testament authors use that word. Uh, he's three yeah, nights. Well, they, and three they, days they always the draw on the Septuagint or the Greek translation. Right. right. So what's in there, that's what we're going to get in the New Testament. Right, right. Yes, yes. Excellent point. So, right. so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, referring, of course, to his own his own death and resurrection, Right. So uh, maybe we could w- with that. So so that's how Jesus uses it, right? This typological reference to Jonah uh, in the whale. Maybe this is a good time then to sort of pivot to what Jonah says when he's in the whale. So we have a prayer from Jonah, or and, and, and it's in the form of a poem, right? Your your King James, your printed King James Bible is probably going to obscure the fact that this is some nice, beautiful Hebrew poetry. Um, and so modern translations like the JPS Tanakh that I'm reading from, it will format it as poetry. So I recommend checking out some modern translations to get a sense of the poetic structure of what Noah says. Um, or Jonah. But, uh, or Jonah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what Jonah says. So they he both says, went on books, um, though. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Uh, uh, so in verse three, uh, Jonah says, in my trouble, I called to the Lord and he answered me from the belly of Sheol. I cried out and you heard my voice. Verse four, you cast me into the depths, into the heart of the sea. The floods engulfed me. All your breakers and billows swept over me. So this is great because we have this reference to Sheol. From the belly of Sheol, I cried out. Uh, again, I think the KJV in the pit, right? In the bottom of the pit, uh, I, the I cried bell, out. Belly of hell is, is... Oh, hell. Okay. So it renders, yeah. Well, there you and have it's, it. This it's is... worth uh, just for our readers who are following along to note that also the versification is different. So you've got different verse numbers. So... Verse your verse four is our verse three, and so on. When you're using uh, JPS, oh, gotcha. there, anyway. Sorry, sorry about any of the confusion here, but uh, uh, it's all good. But but let's point out this shell, this hell, as the King James translates it, or the shell. So this is very basically the Hebrew underworld, right? Uh, yeah. It's um, it's death. It's well, we can call it hell, uh, but it's the underworld. It's Hades. the realm of the dead. Hades. Yeah, yeah it's the realm of the dead. So. When Jesus says, you know, the, the sign of Jonah is that the Son of Man will be in the earth for three days and three nights, that's very appropriate because that's almost quite literally what, well, it is quite literally what Jonah says he's experiencing. He is in the underworld. He is uh, in the realm of death for three days and three nights. Uh, so we can see where Jesus typologically where this works and where Jesus is getting this idea from and how he can use it appropriately, uh, appropriately like this. So that's the first thing to point out, uh, something real, an interesting connection there. Um, Another thing to point out, I think, uh, that's really interesting is how much of the imagery in Jonah chapter two is drawing from sort of mythic archetypes that we see in surrounding Canaanite culture. So, for example, the Canaanites uh, have this god named Yam, 
his name means sea, right? You know, appropriately enough. And Yom, the sea, is uh, often personified as like a great dragon with a fishtail or a great sea serpent of some kind, uh, some kind of a big sea creature, right? And in the classic myth from Ugarit, the god Baal has to fight and slay Yom uh, for, for dominion and kingship over the world, right? So you have these forces of nature at battle with each other. Um, so you... I, I, again, I, I believe the ancient Israelites reading the story, these sort of mythic archetypes that their neighbors and they themselves are sort of circulating would have come to mind, right? They would have, and, and right. the, the effect is to say, Jonah is God's prophet is being swallowed up by this chaos monster, right? The chaos monster of the sea, the raging sea serpent that comes, the, the, this mythic serpent that devours uh, everything. So you get these archetypes that's playing on. You also get the archetypes of like the primordial waters of chaos in creation, right? The floods and the breakers and the billows, right? So the angry, the, the depths of the angry sea that God has to tame and to, and to order when he creates, right? Th this imagery, I think, uh, uh, plays, plays in here. So we have some really, I think, some really awesome, some tremendous, uh, well-attested ancient Near Eastern mythological tropes that our biblical author is reappropriating, um, or that Jonah is reappropriating uh, and recontextualizing as he discusses his experience in the whale. And so what that teaches to me is um, whatever fun, lingering, weird questions we might have about, you know, how does, how does Jonah survive in the belly of a fish and what kind of a fish was it? Those are fun questions to kind of speculate about and wonder about. Um, but we can see something deeper going in here, going on here, which is that Jonah is tapping into these mythological archetypes to describe his descent into the underworld, his descent into the realm of death, just for him to reemerge, uh, to reemerge after God shows mercy upon him, right? So uh, Jonah prays to God uh, here uh, in verse eight uh, in the JPS versification. When my life was ebbing away, I called the Lord to mind and my prayer came before you into your holy temple. So there's some temple imagery here. So we see the connection here, I, I hope, right? And where there's a lot more mm -hmm. deeper thematic elements happening here uh, than just funny, interesting questions about what kind of a fish was this thing that, that swallowed Jonah. Good. Uh, but in any case, yeah, I don't know if there's anything else we need to hit on that, but that uh, uh, I think sort of gives a couple of points to show, to ground Jonah chapter two in a real world setting. These are real well-attested ancient mythic types and and symbols that Jonah is drawing on and by understanding that it helps me better understand uh the imagery happening here in Jonah chapter two uh, but good. of course but uh, the the end of the chapter of course uh the Lord commanded the fish and it spewed Jonah out upon dry land so there you have it right uh Jonah learned his lesson uh, or so we think and uh, uh he repents and the lord saves him from hell or the underworld or the realm of death and chaos and destruction and he's once again upon terra firma which is what we want right we want our feet planted on dry ground uh, dry land which is good so then jonah three and, and of course uh, the, oh, the, go ahead. the fish has the the fish in some ways represents god's ability to control everything right so in yeah. the meantime in these three days the fish has been taking him the right direction uh, yeah, <laughs> not to Tarshish, right? And then when God wants it to, it he it puts Jonah where God wants him to be, right? So, uh, yeah. it, in some ways, this is symbolizing that God's God has control over everything, and everything will work to accomplish God's purposes, despite your desire to run away from Him. Excellent point. Yes, and uh, we see a, a fun literary inversion, right? He gets on a boat to sail up to Tarshish. 
he gets in a nice little aquatic submarine, a mammal submarine of the whale to take him back, right? Uh, so, yep, again, the, the punchline here is you can't escape when God calls you to his service. You can try to run away, but you can't. So that's a, another excellent point there. So then with chapter three, uh, we just have two chapters left, right? It's a very short book. Chapter yeah. three is where we have Jonah's actual preaching to the people of Nineveh. So uh, chapter three, verse one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. So another good prophetic call uh, sort of formula. Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim it what I tell you. So then Jonah, now this time Jonah's learned his lesson. Jonah went at once to Nineveh in accordance with the Lord's commands. Uh, and that it talks about Nineveh being this enormously large city that is three days to walk across. So uh, I'm sure, Carrie, you've done some archaeological work. You know what archaeology is. You know probably how big Nineveh is. And you probably know it does not take three days to walk across Nineveh. Uh, so this no. is, uh, we, we know the site of Nineveh. It's been well excavated and well studied, right? So uh, if you don't know that context, you hear the thing and say, wow, that's a pretty big city, right? It's like New York or Manhattan or, you know, Beijing or something. No, not quite. Uh, Nineveh is not, it's a big city by ancient standards. It's not nearly that big. You can walk yeah. across it in an afternoon. It doesn't take you three days to, to walk from one end to the other. So yeah, very I mean, clearly, for, for its time, it's a giant city and right. its walls were big. And I mean, but I don't think it even would take you three days to walk all the way around the walls. So um, yeah. it's, I mean, it's hyperbole. Right. Yeah, exactly. So there you go. It, this is clearly hyperbole and exaggeration, going back to what uh, you know we've been talking about before. So um, now Nineveh, of course, was a real city, right? The author's not making up Nineveh. It's not a fake city. Uh, but the way the author is describing it to our earlier point, right, uh, is clearly being exaggerated for the purposes of the story. Um, so keep that in mind. Uh, this context is useful to have as you uh, talk about Jonah preaching in Nineveh. So uh and so he gets there and Jonah makes his way into the city and he proclaims. Um, and this is, you know, famous, uh, very to the point. Matter of fact, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's, uh, that's the JPS translation. I believe King James has something very similar to it. Yeah. Notice here, notice here that Jonah doesn't give any conditions. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. The people of Nineveh are doomed to destruction, or so it seems. And uh, the uh, the Hebrew takes sort of a, a something of an ambiguity here, or a pun or a play on words, because the Hebrew verb hafak can mean to like to overturn or overthrow, but it can also take a more abstract sense of like to turn everything around in the sense of like to make everything go crazy, right? Uh, to make it topsy turvy, as it will. Yeah. And so, and so our, is our ancient Israelite hearers who are hearing the story, they hear this verb, hafak, that Noah says is going to happen to Nineveh, and they or can Jonah. be thinking, or Jonah, sorry, that Jonah says is going to happen to Nineveh, and they can be thinking one of two things. Either the city is going to be destroyed, or everything is going to go crazy, topsy-turvy, right? And, well, we Which know what from happens. their point of view, is not yeah. far different. Uh, it's just a different form of destruction when things are yeah. exactly the opposite of how you expect them to be. Right, when the, the created order gets thrown uh, out, of, out of loop, right? Yeah. And uh, again, the joke here is that that's exactly what happens. Because for the rest of chapters three and four, um, everything kind of, uh, nothing goes as planned as you'd expect with the classic prophetic archetype story, right? So the very next verse after Jonah says this, it says, the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and great and, and small alike put on sackcloth 
when the news reached the kingdom of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, he took off his robe, he put on sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. Um, he then makes a decree that kings and nobles, even uh, even the beasts, the flock or the herd, shall not taste anything. So they're all going to fast. So he proclaims a citywide fast. Uh, even the animals are going to be covered in sackcloth, man and beast, and they shall cry and repent to God. So uh, again, the over-the-top hyperbole of all this, right? So everyone in Nineveh, even the dogs and the cows, the, the livestock, everybody is going to fast and put on sackcloth and repent. How exactly animals are supposed to repent, the story doesn't say, but that's the joke, right? Like So, yeah. uh, so everything has been thrown topsy-turvy, just as Jonas said would happen. So the, the big, evil, scary Assyrians, uh, one of my professors there at BYU when I was an undergrad, uh, Bill Hamblin of Blessed Memory, uh, he one time in one of our classes he said the Assyrians in, were like the ancient Nazis, basically, in terms of like their reputation for like ferocity oh, and yeah. violence and brutality and how no. the Bible envisions these people. Right. These are again, like next to the Babylonians, the Assyrians like are archetypal bad guys. And here they are in a citywide repentance and fast, even down to the animals. It's so, in a way that never happened with any of the prophets who prophesied in any city in Judah or uh, in Israel, right? So you never got exactly. the whole city doing this. Exactly. They have no, mostly ignored the prophets. That's exactly right. So again, another funny sense of irony here or satire here, right? That the evil, wicked Nazi Assyrians, they humble themselves and repent. I mean, that the Israelites never really did en masse. So now, so that's pretty funny. Uh, and we see, and we think to ourselves, okay, well, that's good, right? The, the Assyrians repented. Um, but then what's really funny is Jonah's response, which yeah. is chapter four. Maybe before we move to that response, yeah, sure. I can just bring up one thing. I, I think this is one of the messages that the, the authors are trying to convey is huh, the worst people in the world from the Israelite point of view at this time period. The Assyrians, they respond to prophets, but Israel doesn't. Is there something we should learn from that? Right. The, the, uh, I, I think that they are using that irony to prod and poke uh, it, Judah or Israel into uh, thinking more seriously about how they respond. Oh, excellent. Well said. And you're absolutely right. That's a great point. And I think, again, like sort of the main message here of chapter three. Right. Uh, yeah. Think of think of the worst people, you know, or that you can think of. Um, think of your archetypal, archetypal hated enemies they can repent, they can return to God. Like that's kind of the message here of chapter three, right? Uh, yeah. uh, we, we can tie with the Book of Mormon, the fact that uh, there, there are instances where the Lamanites are depicted as being more righteous than the Nephites, right? And we think of Nephites as, oh, the Nephites are the good guys, the Lamanites are the bad guys. Uh, but there are plenty of cases where the Lamanites show themselves being more humble and penitent towards God than the Nephites are. Same kind of idea you have here. When you invert yeah. that expectation, you, sub, you subvert that expectation, the principle comes out and it really shines. Uh, and the author of Jonah is doing it masterfully here. Yeah, and Nephite prophets do the same thing. They're like, hey, you know what? The Lamanites treat their wives the right way. Or you know what? Right. The Lamanites are repenting and you're not. So they do this exact same kind of thing. Yes, yes, well said. The uh, so, so the principle uh, there, uh, you can find multiple books of scripture. What I love about Jonah is the fact that our author is so on the nose, sort of uh, hyperbolic about it, right? Uh, yeah. To really drive the point. So again, it... it, it uh, I don't want to say it's amusing in the sense that it's like trifling, but it is very amusing, uh, the, the story, how he talks about it, right? Uh, it, uh, it has a great uh, intended effect on the reader, um, besides having these important uh, principles. Um, so maybe we can then wrap up uh, if there's anything else with chapter three about chapter four, which is mm -hmm. Jonah's response. 
this is like sort of the ultimate climax of this whole story and uh, the ultimate, the crowning irony of, of the story is Jonah's response. Verse, uh, so we're on Jonah chapter four, verse one. This displeased Jonah greatly and he was grieved. That is really funny when you have a prophet who is mad that people are repenting. I mean, come on, for heaven's sake, right? Like uh, no. the, the whole point of being a prophet is you call people to repentance and you are happy and joyful when they repent, right? And they accept God's covenant and they come back, right? Like that's a good thing. Jonah is hopping mad that the Assyrians have done this, that, that they listened to his message, I guess, right? That they, yeah. that they actually repented. Again, it's funny, right? Like you don't expect this out of a prophet, but we see it in Jonah. Um, and here's why, he, uh, why he's upset. He prayed to the Lord saying, Oh Lord, isn't it just what I said when I was still in my own country, that this is why I fled beforehand to Tarshish? For I know that you are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in kindness, renouncing punishment. Please, Lord, take take my life, for I would rather die than live. And the Lord replies, Are you that deeply grieved? I mean, come on. So Jonah is like it basically he's it seems like he's really embarrassed by the fact that God has been so gracious and merciful to Israel's enemies, the Assyrians, to the point that he wants to die from embarrassment because he he says, I know that you're a gracious God, and that, but when I came to the Assyrians and I preached destruction against them, they didn't know that. And now they've learned that you're a gracious, you know, merciful God. And now I look like the bad guy for it. So thanks a lot, God. I'd rather just die than have to go on living in this embarrassment or this ignominy, right? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you can take it a couple different ways uh, because you can take it that way. You can take it as in he's saying, I really wanted them to experience justice. And that's why I didn't want to preach because I knew if they repented, you'd forgive them. And I didn't want them to be forgiven. And we've probably all yeah. felt that way at certain times when people have done bad things to us or whatever. But, so there are a couple right. different ways, but whatever it is, it's clear that Jonah's not happy about God's right. mercy being given yeah. to these people. Again, which really as you funny say is highly ironic. Prophet. Highly ironic to hear a prophet upset that God is merciful to his enemies, right? Uh, yeah. So, but but this gives us a sense, I think, of um, maybe I think we're we're tapping into a real aspect of Jonah's real character as a person, right? Maybe this is something. Uh, even if this book is probably composed much after Jonah's time uh, and is clearly sort of uh, satirical and hyperbolic to a degree, I mean, who's to say if Jonah really, if this doesn't capture an aspect of Jonah's real personality, right? And sort of shows us a bit of his human character here. Uh, he maybe did have this sort of vindictive streak to him a little bit. Uh, and maybe the author is exploiting that to teach us this principle about the importance of, of repentance and forgiveness. Um, but but in any case, uh, you know, we see here this this pretty funny irony with the prophet being mad that the people repented. Um, so So God is going to have the last laugh here. Um, he's going to teach Jonah one more lesson before um, uh, before the book concludes. So after after this little back and forth, Jonah leaves. He finds he makes himself a nice little booth to sit under the shade in the hot sun. Um, and God call, well God produces and and the word in Hebrew is a kikion. It's this plant. We don't really know what it is. Some things like a castor plant, a, a rhynchus plant. I think King James is a gourd, right? God yeah. or, or, or a vine or something like that. So we don't know They're what the plant is. just choosing something that grows fast, right? So like your zucchini, you go out one day and you see it small and you come back two days later and the thing's so yeah. big you can't eat it anymore, right? They're just choosing something that grows fast. Something that grows fast, right? So some kind of, yeah. Uh, so, so God has a plant that grows over Jonah. 
and it provides shade for him to save him from the hot sun. And Jonah's happy because now he has a nice uh, shady place to hang out. But then the next day, verse 7, the next day at dawn, God provided a worm which attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a sultry east wind. So this is a a good ancient imagery. The east wind brings in uh, the hot desert desert air, right? So uh, sultry, hot east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head and he became faint and he begged for death, saying, I would rather die than live. And the final punchline comes from God. God said to Jonah, are you so deeply grieved about the plant? Yes, Jonah replied, so deeply that I want to die. So uh, Jonah's not having a good time. Uh, He's had it. He just wants out once and for all. The Lord says, and here's the, the final takeaway message. The Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not work for and which you did not grow, which appeared overnight and perished overnight. And should not I care about Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not yet know their right hand from their left, and many beasts as well? And then it ends. And then the story stops. So it ends on this rhetorical, again, it's kind of a a halted climax here. It ends on a rhetorical question. And, you know, the rhetorical question is obvious. Jonah, you're getting mad at a plant that that it died and withered, and you didn't do anything for it. How should I, God, feel about these people in Nineveh? You know, should I feel about, should I esteem them any, any worse than this plant that, that you had, right? So he, he asks him this rhetorical question, and it's a powerful and effective one. Um, and uh, it's, I mean, if we want to use the parlance from the Doctrine and Covenants, the worth of souls is great in the eyes of God, right? And that even includes the evil, wicked Assyrians in Nineveh. And so it's funny that Jonah gets mad about uh, the, that the people aren't going to be destroyed, but God still cares about them. He still loves them. And so he, he uses the imagery of this, of this plant to sort of drive this point home, which is to say, Jonah, you're getting mad over nothing and your priorities are all mixed up. Uh, you're, you're worried about this dumb plant that I grew and created for you, but you're not worried about the people of Nineveh, which is what you should be, right? These are, these are the, the people that I care about that you should care about. So that's our kind of our final message. God asks this probing rhetorical question of Jonah and we don't know if Jonah gets the punchline or not, uh, because it just ends yeah. there. So I, I think we as the readers are invited to make our own decision whether we think Jonah learned his lesson or not, right? Uh, and that's, uh, again, some of the power of this book, the way it's uh, sort of constructed here. It leaves yeah. it open for us to decide. After we've read the whole story, we can kind of uh, put ourselves in Jonah's place and try to think, how would we feel in the situation? What principles do we learn from it? Uh, if, as if we were Jonah, what can we take from that? Um, and and the punchline here, uh, the, the ultimate message is the worth of souls is great in the eyes of God, even when God's prophets are sometimes bullheaded about this like Jonah was, and they don't quite get the message. Uh, God still does, and he ultimately is the one who still cares about it. So so that's a nice message yeah. to conclude on, but it leaves a little bit of an ambiguity there at the end, just enough to kind of pique your interest and make you you know think about it as you leave the story. Yeah, and I do think that's one of the intended literary devices here, that by you not knowing how the story ends for Jonah, you necessarily are forced into asking, how would I react? How, right. how, I don't know how Jonah reacted, so I have to ask, how, how would I have? And I think that's part of the point of this entire story is to get yourself to think, uh, like to get all of Israel to think about them as opposed to how Nineveh responded, and now get you as an individual to get you to think, how would I respond as opposed to how did Jonah respond? And since we don't know, we really have to do some introspection.
yeah, well said. Couldn't have said it better myself. Um, so that kind of wraps up uh, my main thoughts about Jonah, right? Uh, my, my main takeaway here, is a, a couple of things. Number one, uh, God really does care about his children, even the really wicked ones. Um, and we should too. Uh, we mm-hmm. might want to become vindictive. We might want to just write them off to destruction and just assume that, well, they're all going to hell because they're bad anyways. But we probably shouldn't have that attitude, right? The attitude we should have is one of uh, trying to be merciful, loving, and forbearing uh, and bringing uh, people back into God's covenant, just like God wants him to, right? So, so there's a big main message. Another big message I take away this is a how-to not to be a prophet manual, right? So yeah. if you look at all of Jonah's characteristics, and that's kind of the point, right? Like, this Well, let's is, say not just prophet, let's say servant of God, because we sure, all sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. think of ourselves as servants of God. So anyway, sorry, keep going. No, that, that, that's very well said, right? So this is, a, this is a manual on how not to be a servant of God. And that includes don't try to run away from your responsibilities. Don't lose perspective on what the most important things are. Don't get mad over nothing. Uh, right. Um, and uh, I don't know. What else could we say? Uh, those are probably the big ones. I'm trying to think probably, of anything else. Yeah, you no. should try and do God's will for God's reasons. It, it, exactly. Yeah, there you go. Right. Uh, um, so so there's a nice thing there. And then the final takeaway that I get from from Jonah. Um, again, we've, we've beat the dead horse here, but the, the artistry and the literary craft going into the story, it's just fantastic. Uh, by the way, it's a lot of fun to read in Hebrew because the Hebrew is simple and punchy kind of like a folk tale, right? Like it's not this highfalutin kind of language. It's it's really, uh, I remember when I was first learning Hebrew BYU uh, with Dom Perry, he had us read Jonah in our first year because it's easy to read, right? Uh, once you have the basics down, it's a fun, simple story to read. So, uh, uh, and that's to great effect. Uh, so uh, uh, so besides that, uh, all the elements of, again, irony, satire, comedic effect, comedic timing, uh, hyperbole, exaggeration, these all come together to drive home these points very nicely. And then last but not least, if you want a good sense of uh, some of the profound imagery of Jonah 2, I would say look to our good neighbors, the Canaanites, to see what their their sort of mythic archetypes were. Uh, That helps us understand some of the the symbolism in Jonah. uh, And we can triangulate that with what Jesus teaches in the New Testament about what the sign of Jonah is. um, And that gives us a nice grounded context for making sense of the really beautiful imagery of chapter 2, which is escaping from hell, escaping from death. Obviously, as Latter-day Saints, we affirm that through the, the power of the Savior and through the power of the atonement. Uh, but uh, in any case, right, uh, escaping the underworld, the belly of the beast, literally escaping the belly of the beast, right, uh, through, yep. through repentance and, uh, and being humble before God. Uh, another great message you can take away from there. Fantastic. A- amen and hallelujah. Thank you, Stephen. I hope, uh, hope that our audience has enjoyed this and maybe has some different perspectives to look at Jonah. Uh, there, there are lots of different ways to look at you know, lots of different takes and I've really in, enjoyed this one you've done it so well so thank you and we hope you'll share this with others and, and uh, that you'll be uplifted yourself great thanks Gary thank you